Blog Talk Radio. Good Saturday morning. This the the Saturday where well, we got one more Saturday before uh, for those of you like me who wait to the last minute to do your Christmas shopping. Those who celebrate the holiday, we have one more Saturday, and then uh, we'll be into Christmas. This year has just to me absolutely flown by. I want to thank all of you for tuning in to Off the Shelf, to our loyal listeners who've been with us now for nine years, and 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 for for those it might be your first time tuning in to Off the Shelf. Welcome, welcome, welcome for this Saturday, December the fifteenth. We're already at the middle of the month, and again, I thank you. It is truly a joy to have you here with us. I want to introduce myself to those who are saying, who is this lady talking? If it's your first time tuning in to Off the Shelf, I'm your host, Denise Turney, and as I always tell you, I'm coming to you live from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the city of brotherly love, and thank you again for your support I encourage you, don't let another day pass before you pick up a copy of Love Pour Over Me. You can go over to an online retailer and get you a copy of Love Pour Over Me right now, even as you enjoy today's interview. If you want to read free excerpts, you can go to my website, which is www.chistel.com. Again, that's C-H-I-S-T-E-L-L.com and read free excerpts. Sample it out, see how you like it uh, there before you purchase a copy of Love Pour Over Me. It's available everywhere, online, offline, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Walmart, you name it. If you don't see it on the shelves, just ask the clerk for it. They can easily order a copy for you because Love Pour Over Me is carried by the largest book distributors in the world. So go get you a copy of Love Pour Over Me today. And now let us go and meet our very special off the shelf guest. Our special guest today, I'm I'm excited to uh uh hear what he will share with us. He has a he I love his website. You guys are gonna have to check out his website. And his name is Ken McAlpine. In addition to being the author of the books Fog, Islands Apart, A Year on the Edge of Civilization. Some really, really awesome titles. And off-season, Discovering America on Winter Shore, Ken McAlpine is also a magazine writer. And for his magazine writing, he has earned the three three Lowell Thomas Awards for travel writing. So kudos to him for that. And I'm sure, as with all of our, each of our off-the-shelf guests, that Ken would absolutely love it if you visited him online at his website, which is KenMacAlpine.com, K-E-N-M-C-A-L-P-I-N-E.com. Again, K-E-N-M-C-A-L-P-I-N-E.com, KenMacAlpine.com. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Ken. Thanks, Denise. It's so fun to be here. And, and I want to tell you right off the bat, I so appreciate everything you do for writers. I just think uh, it's just really, really nice. Because it's, uh, I think the big battle is getting the word out, and uh, yeah, it's just kind of you. So thanks. Oh, I appreciate that. I be, and I think you're one of the first guests in almost nine years who said thanks. You know, I do newsletters. I've done a contest, and uh, somebody sent me a card once, a thank you card, and I told them, you, you, I said, I think you're the first or second person in almost ten years who's done that. We take so much for granted, and uh, it's, it's very rare that that people stop to say thank you. We'll complain at the drop of a hat, but it's very rare <laughs> yeah. that we say thank you or support someone who is supporting who who we 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 don't we don't support, we don't say thank you. So, I really appreciate that I do and I appreciate all of our loyal listeners here at Off the Shelf. I want to start by asking you you're a magazine writer as well, and we have listeners who would love to be in your shoes, Ken. They would love huh. to be a published book author. They would love to have just one piece of something they wrote published it's possible. in a magazine. It is possible. Yeah. And, and, you've, and you've won these three awards. Did you read a lot when you were a kid? What what got you, what, what, what stirred up your passion for writing? Did you read a lot of books when you were young? Yeah, that's a great question, and that's, I did. Um, it's funny, it's a funny job in that you really, there's no path to becoming a writer, no one set path. It's not, I don't have a, I have a degree in environmental science. I was lucky to go to college and, and I got a degree in environmental science. I took a couple journalism classes and that's it. 
but a lot of times people ask me, you know, well, how do you become a writer? And, and I don't have one answer, but I did. I read, as a kid, I read a lot. And that sticks, I think. And I still try to read as much as I possibly can, although the irony is you're so busy writing that you don't mm-hmm. have much time to read. But, yeah, if I had to recommend one thing, and, and that and just pay attention. I mean, I think, uh, especially in these fast-paced times, we become less observers and yeah. more frantically clinging to the raft as it's swept downstream. So, <laughs> But, yeah, reading was a big part of my growing up. What? Was, there, was there one event? Some writers say there was something, maybe with a school teacher, et cetera, a parent, somebody. Was there an event? Did anything happen? I know you read a lot as a child, but did anything happen to jump out to you to make you think, "Ah, I'm a writer"? Yeah, you know that's a fun that's a fun question too. But I'll be honest, I was kind of a wandering soul. It took me a while to figure out what I wanted to do, Denise. I uh, I um I worked as a professional. I went to college and then I got out of college and I worked as a, a lifeguard in Ocean City, New Jersey, just down the road from you. Okay, actually. yeah. I found out you were in uh-huh. Philadelphia. I thought, oh, I love Philadelphia. My wife's from outside of Philadelphia, okay. Collingswood, New Jersey, and uh, just the the sound of the name warmed my heart. But anyhow, I, I didn't. Uh, I I had sort of a an obtuse career path, and uh, there was no one event. I just always knew that I loved to read and I loved how certain writers touched me and I just thought that must be a great feeling to reach out to somebody you don't even know and and make an impact. Now I'm married to a school teacher. She does it every single day with 30 kids and plenty of other people do it in other careers. But I think one thing that struck me about writing over a 25-year career is that you know, you can get a letter from from somebody in New Delhi, and, and that's fantastic. Yes. Uh, it's wonderful. And, you know, I, I'm preaching to the choir here, but, yeah. But there was no one sort of turning point. I, I sort of eased into this career, and when I did, I suddenly realized this is it. This is what I love to do. But it took me a while. <laughs> I, I find that fascinating. Now, a lot of writers that I've interview or, or whether it's on a newsletter or magazine or here on off the shelf, they will say some of them there was some particular event that happened, as I was saying earlier, and some people and I find this fascinating, they just stumble into the right stuff in their life. It's I don't know if that's their subconscious working. They just stumble in to the to the right they're they're right at the right place at the right time. I find that I find people that that happens to they fascinate me. Why, now, when I was doing research for your interview, one thing that just I appreciate me, that. That's sweet because you must have so many guests. So it's really nice um, that you go to that effort. When I was, you're very welcome. When I was doing the research for um, today's show, one thing that jumped out to me was I said, "Wow, this guy he he, he loves the outdoors, and he tra- he's traveled a lot. Why did you travel so much when you were a kid?" Were your parents in the military? I mean, I've done the research, so I know some of this, but for our off-the-shelf listeners, why did you travel a lot as a child? And how many states or countries would you say you lived in before you became an adult? Uh, sure. That's uh, It was a really uh, fun and interesting childhood. My dad worked for the uh, government. He was stationed at embassies in south, his uh, area of expertise was Southeast Asia. So uh, let's see, I was born in Singapore, uh, they lived. Wow. In, I, mean, I was born in Hong Kong. <laughs> we lived in uh, Singapore, uh, Laos, and uh, then they went on to um, Australia, and they were also served in Taiwan too. But so it was sort of it was an interesting childhood. I, I think it it really it, uh, indirectly, actually directly, helped me out as a writer. But it was a really fun. My wife grew up in the same town her, her whole life, and that has its charms, too. And so we sort of compare notes. But it was interesting. We'd spend four years in our home in Virginia, roughly. And then I would come home from school, and my dad would be sitting at the table with language cards. And I'd say, what language is that? And he'd say, wow. <laughs> and I'd go up to my room, and I'd look at a map on the wall, and I'd find out where Laos was. And then off we'd go for four years. and. uh it was wonderful. I met incredible people, and uh, it was just a really, really fun experience. I mean, it's hard. You left your friends, and yeah. you made new friends. And for a kid, 
that that part sometimes is a little bit difficult. But yeah, so it was all in Southeast Asia, and it was it was total joy. And my dad always insisted that we live. Sometimes in some of these countries, there were American compounds, just sort of like neighborhoods that were all Americans. And he always insisted that we lived outside the compound and in whatever city we were in. And I think that was also a a great experience because we were generally pretty immersed in in whatever culture we lived in. But, you know, I was also just a 12-year-old kid playing baseball, and so parts of it were typical growing up, but then all of a sudden you'd be in class and and somebody would come in and tell you that your friend's father had been shot down. Yeah. Uh, So they were jarring, uh, and in that case, my my buddy's father was okay, but so there were sort of these weird disconnects, too, that weren't typical of a normal childhood <laughs> wow i mean and, and then i've always heard people say regardless of where you were born what country you were born in because uh, sometimes we talk like we we had everything to do with what we were born but we don't right, right. but uh, uh uh we could be we could be you know we were so proud to be whatever country we're in but wherever our mother gave birth that's where we would have been born it's not it's not right. like we did it but um People say no matter where you are, where you're born, travel to another country. I have heard so many people say that. The furthest out I went was Hawaii so far, and even though it's a part of the United States, it doesn't feel like it to me. Um, just being around different cultures, seeing how other people d- do things, is an eye opener. Because if you don't get that experience, you'll think everything that happens in your family and your neighborhood is the way it is all over the world. And that's not true. It's good to have those different experiences. And for you to have them as a child, I can only imagine how they they weave their way into your stories. Uh, uh, so, like you said, that's something that I'm sure has helped you as a writer, which I wanted to ask you. And if you thought specifically how your, your experiences traveling with your family as a child, the different cultures you grew up in and the, the, the different thoughts and uh, that people have, et cetera, that you were, you got to see firsthand. How have those, ex- how have you used, you purposely used your experiences traveling with your family? How do you use it today as a novel writer? Yeah, that's a great question. It's funny, um, on the flip side, and I, I I don't want people to think that to be a writer you have to travel because mm-hmm. you don't. I mean, I think one of my favorite quotes is uh, from uh, Henry David Thoreau, and it's the question is not what you look at but how you see it. And I mm. think people, you know, you don't have to. I think some people do say to me, gee, that's so hard. I, I haven't had a chance to travel, and, you know, and I was fortunate. My father took us all over the place, and that was a gift. But some people don't have that gift and or they can't afford to get to places and you know, I've been able to go to a lot of places through magazine work. and But so I guess the first thing I'd say, Denise, to the aspiring writers is don't worry if you've never left your house. And I think there's numerous incredible famous writers whose names escape me now who literally did never leave their house and wrote beautiful novels. So it's not a prerequisite. But having said that, you know, the chance to travel and see parts of the world. I've never been to Europe. There's lots of places I've never been to, but, you know, little pieces stick and you're you're not aware of it at the time and then they resurface later. I mean, the human mind is a remarkable thing and yeah. I'm as forgetful as the next person and probably more so, but it's amazing what what you dredge up and, and so that in that instance, those things have definitely, the experiences of traveling and seeing things have definitely helped me overseas, but I think or help me with my novels, but the thing I think that's most important is they they gave me um, people skills because when you travel, I think really one of the most interesting things about travel is not so much the places you go to, but the people that you meet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you have to be sort of outgoing. I mean, I'm uh, mildly shy, I guess, but I've learned to to develop some pretty good people skills that people like you and get along with you and that comes in really handy. I mean the first book I did off season Discovering America on Winter Shore, I basically traveled up the whole East Coast from Key West Florida to, to Lebec, Maine over the course of five months in the winter time. Mm-hmm. The idea was to see this piece of America that people don't usually see, you know and I stopped in all these little towns and all the tourists were gone. What that actually required was basically 
going into a tiny town where pretty much everybody knew everybody else, standing outside the bar, you know, taking a deep breath and then walking in and, you know, every head in the place turns to you and, you know, you have to sort of learn to make friends and as you know, a 12-year-old, I learned to do that and as a 53-year-old, I'm, I'm still practicing that. So, oddly, that is probably the greatest skill out of travel, and I'm not saying I'm perfect and really lazy. I'm saying it really is. The writer, you need to be curious. You need to tolerate every engine you have and approach people and ask them questions and and things out. That's the fodder for whether it's a magazine article or a novel. So you mm-hmm. have to be sort of outgoing, and that was a skill that I definitely picked from being in the situations as strangers. Your phone is, I don't know if it's your phone or if it's just a line, but it's not coming through as clear. Uh, I can hear you, but it's like you're fading in and out just a tad. I don't know if it's if it's if if you're on a cell phone, that might have something to do with it. Uh, oh, I am. Yeah. Should I, do you want me to try to call back on another phone? Would that be an interruption? Or, sorry about that, I'm not very technologically deaf. It is a cell phone. Uh, you know what? We we can go. We can try a, a, a little bit longer. If it keeps going, then then we can. You can maybe dial in on a landline phone. But it started okay, off fine. fine. It started off fine. Okay. It started off fine. Um, I wanted to ask you before I, I have so much I want to cover in the today's show with you for our listeners. But which came first for you, the magazine writing or the novel writing? Which did you start doing first? I started with the magazine writing. It's all been sort of a growing process, I guess. And uh, I I started with the magazine writing, and that was about 25 years ago, Denise. And then uh, the first uh, book I wrote came out in 2004. That was off-season. And so I forget. I probably started magazine writing in about 1987. <laughs> Sounds like a long wow. time ago. So uh, and it was a slow process. I mean, oftentimes people say, "Well, how do you get into this uh, into the magazine business?" and you know, my first advice is to start small. I mean, you don't pitch National Geographic Traveler right out of the box. You, you, you. I started working for a little weekly paper here in Ventura, California, where we live, and I, and then I submitted small pieces to you know regional magazines, and then finally, I think the first national magazine I worked for was a magazine called Surfer, which is a great magazine, but is obviously a niche magazine. But that was mm-hmm. the first piece I sold to a national magazine. But of course, they're smaller caliber. And then you slowly work your way up. I mean, you're not going to get a feature story with, you know, National Geographic right off the bat, just because you don't have any clips or any credentials. Right. And so it's it's a building process. And you know, after 25 years, I've been really really lucky and it's a small world the magazine world the editors they they all talk and if a writer is gets his his or her work in on time and they're good and that word spreads and uh i didn't realize it so much at the time i might have seized up with anxiety in the beginning but um you know i i I, um i'm still working to improve my craft but i guess they thought they were i was relatively good and I was timely and so you know I got the work and for 25 years I've, I've had the work wow and I've been able to I mean work is uh I, three weeks ago I went white shark diving off of Guadalupe wow. Island oh my I goodness mean, it's not your typical I mean some of it is kind of mundane but a lot of it is a dream and uh so it's it's a great great job <laughs> wow wow how has before I start talking going to your books how has the how do you see the internet changing the travel writing industry and to be a travel writer it's a two part question do you have to travel to these exotic places to be a travel writer cuz i know that's a, that travel writing pays fairly well uh travel writing uh you can get some in medical writing and of course copywriting but um do how do you see the internet changing the industry and do you have to travel these faraway exotic places to land land travel writing jobs. Yeah, the the internet question that's a good one, and uh, I'll be honest, I'm I'm just sort of slowly coming around. I'm a bit of a dinosaur. I mean, I, I you know now I have a Facebook page and a website, and uh, but a couple of years ago I didn't, and uh, so I'm I'm not all that familiar with the internet world. I think the one thing about internet travel writing is, or just the internet writing in general is. You know, now there's just this deluge of writing, and it's uh, it just makes it so much 
it's a it's a double sided sword. I think it's a wonderful thing in that everybody has the opportunity to publish their work, and that's the best thing of all. But mm-hmm. the hard thing for a writer is now the volume has doubled, or gosh, I don't even know exponentially. Who knows? But it's hard to distinguish yourself from the torrent of writing. There's just so much stuff out yeah. there. Blog yeah. writers, and you know, 25 years ago it was like you were either published in magazines and books or you weren't. And right. now it's uh, so it was a smaller group, but I think it's great. I mean, I think I think it's wonderful that everybody has a chance because 25 years ago there were incredible talents who just for some reason couldn't get their foot in the door, and now mm-hmm. everybody has that chance. So I think it's really exciting. And as far as the traveling to exotic places, it's um, the way it typically works, at least with me, is uh, and and probably a lot of travel writers is that you pitch the idea to the magazine and then they send you because it uh, you know it doesn't make sense financially to, to pay for everything out of your own pocket go to Palau and then come back and not be able to sell the piece yeah so what happens <laughs> is uh but a lot of people ask me that and there, there may be some writers who do it but we don't have the bank account right so what'll happen is uh you know i'll send a query letter to a magazine and 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 say you know Palau is one of the most beautiful places in island in the South Pacific, one of the most beautiful places in the world with world-class diving, and and uh, it's a waterman's paradise. And, and, I mean, it has to have a hook, and there has to be something sort of topical and new. But And then the magazine, if I'm lucky, will come back and say, hey, Ken, this is a fun idea. We'll send you. And so they they send you to these places, and it, that part's amazing to me still. They, they pay for everything, and... Uh, but I will tell you this, and I'll be honest, and, and maybe it's me, but I don't think so. I mean, I know a lot of other people in the industry don't get into writing for the money mm-hmm. because it's not a super high-paying job. It's the most satisfying job I've, I can imagine, but I would never encourage anybody to just be a writer because they want to make money. I mean, sure, J.K. Rowling is richer than the right. Queen of England, but J.K. Rowling is the exception like, oh, to the rule. anomaly. Her and Stephen King and... Yeah, right. these are these are not the everyday. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. You know, your, our, our fantasies tell us, yeah, I'm gonna be one of them. But go on and get out there. <laughs> right, and that's the hope. I mean, that's everybody, every writer's hope, right? Yeah. You, you know that you'll. But it's uh, you know, I think sometimes people. I talk to lots of school, high schools, and things, and. You know, there some of the kids are definitely interested in the paycheck, and they're like, "Wow, yep. writers make a lot of money." And I'm like, "Well, uh, select few do. Yeah. For the rest of us, it's uh, you better love it because that's what's going <laughs> to sustain you. And then, <laughs> you know, and then the hope is, I mean, I I've been lucky, but um, you know, it's still a struggle. It's still a struggle. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah. You you're right. I I was another writer and I were talking. I said you better have passion for what you do and love it. Even if you do make a lot of money, whether it's acting or whatever you're doing, science, education, you're gonna have to put your head down and really dig into it. So you better love it because it's gonna require a lot of you. So and, and your part of your paycheck when you love something is the joy you get from just doing it. When when did when and why? Did you sit down and write off season Discovering America on Winter Shore and which was published in two thousand and four, you said. Why did you decide to take on this story? And also is it fiction or non fiction for our lit so our listeners? Yeah, that's off season, uh, Denise is a non fiction book and, and uh that was the first book uh, Random House uh bought it. I mean I, I sent him a proposal through an agent and they said yes, which was oh my gosh, that was that was just so exciting. But the premise behind that book, Denise, was sort of you, I'd worked for a while for the Los Angeles Times, and and anybody who picks up a newspaper realizes that it's a lot of it was just it's always often bad news and and kind right. of depressing. And I, and I knew that you know between the scenes there were great places where great people did nice things for each other, and these sort of tucked away hidden corners that very few people saw. So I I packed up our family van. I mean, I grew up on the East Coast, so I knew the East Coast. We live in California now. But I packed up the van and drove across the country and uh, started in Key West. And the idea was to do the whole East Coast in wintertime, you know, when all the tourists are gone from these small uh, coastal towns like Murals Inlet, South Carolina, or Ocracoke, North Carolina. And 
And I just ran, drove up the coast with really no plan other than to find the smallest place I could and then find out a little bit about it and meet the people. And it actually turned into, sometimes I think I have a guardian angel on my shoulder or something. It turned, I, I met the most incredible characters and just the nicest people. And I'd, I'd pull into a small town and everybody knew you were there. I mean, it was a little tiny place and they didn't have many visitors in December. And uh, within 10 minutes, you know, everybody knew the guy with California tags had pulled into town and he was wow. sleeping in the back of his van and he had a kayak in the back. And I mean, it was just fun, but they invited me to potlucks. They invited me to music festivals. But wow. important, I just got this look at, at this piece of America that a lot of people don't see. And uh, it just, it just a book, it just, I couldn't believe the things that happened to me along the way. And the book turned out really well. Barnes & Noble, it was a great new writer's selection, although wow. I, I don't think I mean, I, I'm not great and I wasn't new, but it was a nice honor. But the book just, it just, the people I ran into were so wonderful. Wow. And their stories were amazing. Wow. Um, and so it turned into a really fun book and a look at a piece of America that a lot of people don't see. And one of the other reasons, and sorry if I'm going on too long, but it's always kind of exciting, was um, I thought a lot of America, and I love this country. I mean, I, this is a, I've seen other parts of the world, and we are so blessed to live here. Yeah. But I was, I did see a lot of this America, a lot of the country becoming sort of homogenized. You know, you could wake up, fall asleep at a intersection and wake up and not know where you are. There's a home depot wow, there. Really? There and everything started, you know, was I think a lot of, you know, it's starting to look the same, uh, you know, and wow. so I wanted to find these sort of quirky, out-of-the-way places where people didn't want to be found and where yeah. a place of America still lived and there was still character. And those places are all over the place, but I just sort of saw this... Uh, homogenization, you know, I see it, we see it a lot in Southern California, the right. box stores, and it could be anywhere. So, uh, anyhow, it was a wow, really, that's really a, fun book. When did you do the the traveling? What what year? It was published in 04. When did you do the traveling? And can you share just a one or two brief stories about, you don't have to give their name, one or two characters, or could you tell us something unusual about one or two towns you visited that we would just surprise people to know, wow, there's a town like this in America? Sure, yeah. I mean, I traveled in, uh, it was 2000, the winter of 2001, 2002. I uh, left here in about, I think it was September, late September, and uh, headed to Key West. And then I came home in about March. So uh, it was a pretty long trip. Uh, but, yeah, it was, I think that, the, I mean, gosh, there's so many um stories it's all sort of a blur but to give you an idea of the sort of characters i met denise i was in um an island saint simon's island georgia and i ran into this gentleman named george baker and uh george is a blackwater diver and what that means is all around saint simon's there's um, a lot of swamps and uh they call them blackwater divers because their job is to go into the water and retrieve things that people lose and the water, you can't, it's so black, you can, can't even see your hand in front of your face. Uh, and they also, they retrieve everything, sadly, from, uh, you know, from bodies to cars wow. to rings to, and then they, they also, um, you also work to, uh, a lot of times, uh, fishing boats, they get their props, the propellers styled and nets and things, and he would go in with these huge tool cutters and cut them loose. And that's hard enough work where you can't see that these swamps, are also filled with alligators, aggressive alligators. And so George has had several interesting alligator encounters. But the the thing that was so funny about him is that he just sort of epitomized common sense. He told me this story where uh, a gentleman from New York had uh, come down to St. Simon's and he'd been fishing off this dock and he'd lost the Rolex that his wife had given him. And so he was panic-stricken and he went into town and said, who can recover the watch? And Somebody said, oh, George Baker, that's what he does for a living. So the gentleman called George and said, uh, you know, I lost the watch. And George said, where did you lose it? And the gentleman said, well, off this dock here, you know, in town. And George said, well, i tell you what I'll do. You know, you, you can pay me $300 and uh, I'll get that watch back for you. And, and the gentleman said, well, that's great. Thanks. I can't believe it. I'm thrilled. I don't know how you can find anything in this water. 
So George took the $300, took $5 out of it, bought a six-pack, went to the end of the dock, and what the guy from New York didn't know was that the tides in Georgia are really extreme. So George just sat on the end of the dock until the tide went out and then just stepped down to the sand and picked up the watch. <laughs> so that's the kind of thing I ran into. I mean, yeah. I mean, oh, God. I ran that's, into that's, that first. That's life, the stuff we think is so difficult. Somebody else knows how to do it, and they just do it in a, in a, in a snap of a finger. Wow. You know what? You, when I was listening to you, I was thinking about the show, Dirty Jobs, and I was saying Ken should do a show where he travels around and lets people see these, right here in this country, places that make you feel like you're in another country because you wouldn't think that the towns like this exist in America. What have readers been saying to you about off season discovering America on winter shore. What what have readers been saying to you about the book? Well I think people are touched by it because it's uh it's it's sort of a poignant look. It it's largely character based. I mean there's a lot of fascinating places in it and I think especially for people on the East Coast, they may know some of these places. So that part I when I hear from readers on the East Coast, that's always fun because they say, Oh yeah, you know I I've been there, and, and uh, you know, sometimes they say, you got it just right, or sometimes they say, well, you know, I thought I remembered this or that. But um, the feedback generally is that it's a touching book. I mean, I, I per, the characters I met really touched me. I think the, one of the, probably the greatest, one of the greatest joys of being a writer are the people you meet, and you take a little piece of them with you. And uh, I just, I was really touched by a lot of the people I met on the, on that trip, and they appear in the book as as moving, smart, witty, funny, sometimes petty, you know, just every trait that we all have, characters. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people who read the book were touched by the people in it, but also touched by the fact that, hey, here's this piece of America that still exists where character Mm -hmm. matters and people aren't, uh, and here I am trumpeting my books, but people aren't trying to sell something and people aren't, you know, trying to get on American Idol. These are just people who are going about their daily day, day-to-day life, you know, living a full life outside the limelight and are perfectly content to do that. And uh, it was just, that was probably the biggest feedback was that, you know, we love the people in the book and these sort of out-of-the-way places you found. And I got a letter from one person who said she was going to totally recreate the trip. So wow, I don't know if that is fascinating. I never heard from her, and I thought, well, that's great that you have the five months, and I want to come along with you. I want to go wow. back. Wow, you know, have you ever thought about doing, uh, uh, going out to a, 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 a television studio and and putting before them, you know, you travel to these different towns. Uh, uh, I don't know if that would even fit your schedule. And then now I just thought about the guy who does this, the the the. Um, was it he he catches these rare fish and things and he travels the world. People are interested in that type of stuff. Where you go to places that they would like to go, but maybe because of their schedule they think they can't and they can live vicariously through you through these different experiences. I thought of dirty jobs, that fishing show and then when when you said about your traveling, I thought it would be something that you might be able to turn into a, a television show, but then of course you'd have to travel a lot too. <laughs> Right, yeah, it's funny. That's actually a great idea. I mean, it's it is a great idea. I'll, I'll be perfectly honest with you. It's, uh, um, I I uh, I love to travel, but I love my family, and I hate yeah. being away from home. So it's always right. hard. Like off season, I was gone for five months. So when that book did fairly well, the the editor said, "Well, we want another book like that." And I, and I I thought I don't want to be gone for five months. Yeah. So I actually came up with. I mean, I came up with a second book idea that. Um, first, I love the idea, but secondly, it kept me close to home, um, and that was Islands Apart. But and then now, obviously, fiction—you don't leave the house, and that's mm-hmm. kind of a joy. I mean, but now I, I still travel for magazine work, and believe you me, I'm not complaining. But I don't like to be away from my family, so uh, you know, five months away was was a long time. Our boys were right. little at the time, and I remember having oh. some heartbreaking calls, you know, yeah. tomorrow, and, and again, not to make a big deal of it, because right. we have servicemen and women who are in Iraq, and they're serving our country and being shot at, and they're in danger, and I was just taking this joyride up the East Coast, but anyhow, it's uh, tra- travel writing is a blessing, but it's also, there's no place yeah. like home. 
So right. the fiction has been a joy because I can do it here and make it all up and fact checkers aren't involved and it's fun. <laughs> now, now to talk about your new book, and I also want to talk about Islands Apart, but to talk about Fog, can you give our off-the-shelf listeners just a, a brief overview? What is Fog about? Sure, it's uh, it's uh, fiction, and it takes place along the shores of Cape Cod in the 1880s, and it's about uh, the surf lifesavers who existed. They actually existed back then, and uh, I won't go into the long story about how I discovered that, but the story is about it starts off with a shipwreck, and a uh, ship goes down with something valuable on it, and for the rest of the book, these two men are pursuing it. One of them is the captain of this surf lifesaving station, and the other is probably one of my favorite characters of all time. His name is Pomp, and he's a moon cusser. And these people, this is what was so fascinating, Denise. I actually uh, stumbled on the surf life-saving stations when I was traveling through Cape Cod for off-season. I met this gentleman, Dick Bunasar, who's sort of the preeminent historian, and he was telling me all about it, and I was fascinated. And I went home and did some research, and I found out about these moon cussers. And when I saw... When I found out about the moon cussers, I thought, this is what, what is a moon cusser? <laughs> well, that's a great question, yeah, and a lot of people don't know, and that's what's kind of exciting. I mean, people who live along the coastline, like if you, your listeners in, say, the Outer Banks of North Carolina, they're going to be smacking themselves in the forehead and going, I know what a moon cusser is, but a lot of people don't. And what they were, and they're not even sure they existed in some places. For instance, on Cape Cod, where I framed this story, they don't know if they existed, but on the Outer Banks of North Carolina, they did. And what they basically did was, at that period of time, shipping was the main form of transportation, and it was sailing ships, so obviously it was a pretty inexact thing. I mean, storms came up and ships wrecked, and uh, that happened a lot. And often when the ships wrecked, you know, people would salvage what was aboard the ship. I mean, everything from wood to rope to to nails, I mean, everything, you name it. And if it was carrying something valuable, they would take that too. And that was sort of a legitimate spoils because the storm had driven the ship ashore. But moon cussers sort of bent storms to their aims. And what they would do is on stormy nights, and there were various ways to do this, but often the typical way was to, on a really stormy night, take a horse, put a lantern around its neck, find a high ridge line, and walk the horse slowly along the ridge line. And when the horse walked slowly, the lantern beneath its neck would sway back and forth slowly. And what would happen would, not always, but a captain who was offshore and foundering ah. in trouble in the storm would see that swaying lantern, and it looked like a, a ship at safe anchor. And they would turn their vessel to shore and, of course, ground, wreck, and these guys would take everything wow. they could. So basically they lured ships ashore. And it was a um you know, a, a pretty uh common practice on like the Outer Banks of North wow. Carolina where where it was pretty wild. On the Cape and this is what was so interesting to me in the eighteen eighties or so where the first where I framed the story, the Cape sort of believed that they were a little bit more civilized and that they had a hand on things and that these moon cutters didn't exist. But I also found out in research that there were certain Cape families that one minute were struggling bug farmers and then the next minute were living in palatial homes. And so <laughs> people came into inexplicable wealth. And I'm not saying that there were moon cussers, and that's the beauty of on the Cape, and that's uh-huh. the beauty of fiction that you can make it up. And right. since the book has come out, I've heard from people on the Cape, and they're full. There's a, uh, they're filled with stories about these sort of inexplicable comings into wealth, and there's a place called the Province Lands way up at the tip of Cape Cod near Provincetown that's still wild and dunes, and it's I think it's part of the National Seashore. And many people, some people believe that there's still spoils buried in those dunes, and uh, that also figures into the book. But, um, yeah, so anyhow, that was, when I heard of Moon Custers, I just thought, this is perfect. And this character just sort of created himself as I was writing, and he's 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 evil and heinous, and he does terrible things, but he also sees sort of the two sides of progress. He sees the future and how man might harness powers that, you know, might get us into trouble, which in essence has sort of happened to a degree. So it's it's really um, it's part of the book sort of philosophical, but it's also just a page-turning battle between these two men tracing this 
treasure wow. that goes down with his ship at the beginning. You know, it's funny. Awesome, that- kind of, it's, it's hard to sum up a book for me. You know, you work for five years on it, and you have five minutes to talk about it. It's, yeah. I always feel like I dabble. <laughs> But, uh, no, it's a fun no, book. I'm enjoying. I am tremendously, as I'm sure our listeners are, enjoying what you're sharing. And thank you for what you're sharing. That's interesting. So the shipwrecks, and then the, you, you just taught many of us, I'm sure, something, perhaps all of us, that we didn't know about the moon clusters, which I was thinking a little bit along the line of the pirates. Now, Fog has been compared to to Moby Dick. Did you have to do yeah, a lot I, of research? Did you do a lot of research? Uh, I did do a lot of research, um, just because I wanted to. And I also wanted to, to ask you, how much did you rely on personal experience when writing Fog versus doing that's, research? That's a great question. I mean, I've spent my whole life around the ocean. I I, uh, I, I worked as a lifeguard in New Jersey for eight summers, and again, what I did on the beach in New Jersey doesn't compare to what these real surf lifesavers did on Cape Cod. I mean, they were you know, rowing out to vessels in the middle of winter. I mean, it was actually seriously life-threatening stuff. But, I, I, you know, I've, I've had a lot of experience around the ocean, so that was that part was it was easy to draw from that. I mean, there's also that argument writers say, you know, if if, um, if you had to understand the topic, you know, Bambi never would have been written, you know, because you don't have to be a deer to write Bambi. But right. Mm-hmm. It, it, it helped me write this book to have a, a really solid grounding and you know I love the ocean I know the ocean I respect the ocean so that part was easy but then I did a, a lot of research about that time frame and it's actually a fascinating time frame because it's a time period that has sort of largely slipped into the mist but from the 1870s when these first life-saving stations were built and they were built around the country uh, not just on the Cape, but all up and down the East Coast, the West Coast, the Great Lakes, and and they were, um, you know, they were heroes of their time. I mean, they were on the cover of Harper's and Saturday Evening Post, and from like 1870 until about 1915, when they were eventually became the Coast Guard, they saved about 275,000 lives. I mean, if before wow. these stations were built and, and manned, and they're generally, especially along the Cape, uh, they were built and then manned during the wintertime, which was, there was an average of two shipwrecks a week in the winter along the Cape. And before these stations were built and the ships wrecked, you were thrown into frozen seas. If you even survived the swim to shore, then you were crawled up on a frozen beach, faced these huge cliffs, and if you were incredibly lucky, somehow you crawled up the cliffs and found your way. They had a couple of these sort of shacks along the shoreline with firewood and things. And if you were one of 100,000, you found your way to these shacks and survived. But most people died. There was a tremendous yeah. loss of life. So they eventually built these stations, and 275,000 lives were saved as a result. And But these, these people performed these sort of incredible heroics and, uh, you know, I learned more and more about them as I read about them, but a lot of that has just really disappeared into the mist. A lot of people don't even know about it. So that part was fun and uh, to learn about, and then a lot of that is in the book, but not in a dull, dry sense. It's it's weaved into either stories that are actually mm-hmm. true that are in the book or stories that, you know, I took the skeleton of them and then just ran with them. But, yeah, it was just an amazing time period, and I did do a lot of research. And then this gentleman, Richard Bunasar, read the book before it was published and helped me tremendously making it accurate and making corrections. And so um, he's the one, that's an overly kind review, but he compared it to Melville and Conrad. Wow, and yeah, that classic. Yeah, and I, that Kudos makes me nervous. Kudos to you. Yeah. yeah, well, that's not, uh, that's a bit of a stretch, but it's it's a good book, and uh um, it's it's a page turner, but it also makes you stop and think about progress and you know whether it's all necessarily good and which might be an underlying theme in a lot of my books. Come to think of it, wow, wow, it's interesting that you that you would pick that up. I think after writing so many books, you do start to see as a writer that you keep putting the same themes in your stories, and it, it could take a while for you to realize that. Why did you set fog? And I've asked other writers who've done this. We had another writer who covered stories in the 1800s. Why did you set Fog in, like, 1882? I'm just thinking to myself, you know, when you write a book, you think, oh, nobody would even know if that's accurate or not, even though it's fiction. 
There are people who will read your story. <laughs> they know exactly oh, what that area is like. They'll tell you, oh, you got this wrong. That town isn't like that. It wasn't like that right. in 1882. So you have to, even though it's fiction, you still have to, like you discussed, you did a lot of research. You still have to because there are readers out there that know. They know the history. They know that. Huh. Why did you? I could always think of a writer setting a story that far back that you just made it that much harder on yourself. Why did you huh. set Fog in 18? 18- 82. What drew you to that time period? Yeah, that's a funny question. I mean, first of all, I said it in that time frame because that's when they existed. But um, that is, you're exactly right, Denise. There are times I thought, oh, my gosh, I just made this so much work because it's it's a fairly complex book, too. I mean, Andrew Carnegie's involved, and there's a, wow. a lot of things. So I had to do not just research about the Surf Lifesavers, but research about that time frame. So to make sure that everything was historically accurate. And you can bet that there are people out there, mm-hmm. and I respect them, but who, you know, and you lose yep. that reader. As soon as you get something wrong and yes. they're reading the book and you, you've gotten something <laughs> wrong, that's it. They're gone. Yeah. So, yeah, but it was also, I mean, and, but I did, I picked that time because that's when these gentlemen existed and when these wrecks occurred. But it was also sort of a fascinating time. I mean, 1882, times were changing. I mean, it was we were sort of on the edge of something completely new. I mean, out west, the buffalo had been wiped out and the Indians largely tamed. And on the seas, the whales had been hunted nearly to extinction. And uh, we were sort of turning to a new time. And, and steel was, you know, the railroads were spreading across the country and steel was starting to, you know, our, you know, our cities were starting to spring up, and it's sort of, so it was sort, we we're sort of on the edge of this tremendous change, and that's what uh, this book sort of hinges on that too. The the treasure has something to do with this tremendous change, and this mooncusser isn't sure he wants to see the change happening, so he's sort of this philosophical. He's he's incredibly violent, and he does whatever he can to to further his aims, and in that in that point, he's sort of a heinous character. But I also liked him because he sort of saw the progress wasn't going to necessarily be entirely good, and he uh, he sort of uh, well he sort of saw the the broad picture. He was a really smart, really wise person. But so I picked that time frame because that's when the surf lifesavers existed, and that's when all these exciting wrecks occurred. But boy, I made a lot of work for myself, uh, <laughs> and I did I did a ton of research. And but you learned so many interesting things, and that's what was so fun. I mean. Uh, Andrew Carnegie's involved in the book slightly, and and I learned so much about him. And he was a fascinating man who started out being all about the money, and and later in life realized that that you know wealth was not God, and that you know that people mattered. And of course, in the end, he wow. ended up giving away a lot of his money to, for philanthropic causes. Wow. So he was sort of an interesting case study, and you know it's hard as a writer sometimes. You know, you're not you're not making any money by spending three weeks researching Carnegie. Right. <laughs> so it's, it's uh, you sometimes think, oh my gosh, you know, I I need to move on. But yeah, it's uh, it was it was. I mean, when people say fiction, I think a lot of people think, oh, you just sit there and make it all up. And yeah, you not, do yeah, no. three, But but there's a lot of it. You know, I have another yeah. book um, coming out soon, and and that's uh. I did a lot of research for that, too, just yeah. to make sure that things were accurate. And it takes place, you know, in 2008. So, but you still have to, you still have to make sure that everything's right. You and, better uh, believe you it. you lose the readers. I mean, have you had that experience where somebody will call up and they'll, you've written a book and they'll say, I love the book. You know, it was a great book. It swept me away. But on page 41. Yes, yes. Have you had that experience? You better believe or, it. You better believe yeah. it. Yeah, so that that yes, you better get that you better get it right, even though it's even it, it's fiction. Was it common? This jumped out at me when I was researching. Was it common for a ship's captain to allow his family, particularly a daughter, to sail with him back in those days? Wow, that is a great question. You did do your research. That would not have been typical, not in the winter time because it was so dangerous. But this particular captain in this particular story had good reason to bring his daughter along. And I can't tell you any more because okay. that's part of the mystery. But no, they would not. I mean, it was incredibly dangerous. And there would have had to have been, it was dangerous enough sailing, period. But in the winter time, trebly so. So 
Yeah, a- anybody who knew the sea would never take their children on board. Yeah, I would. I would good reason. I, yeah, I said. I, I said, wow, his daughter, and I'm thinking just the just the times when it comes to the, the sexes, how we've progressed and still got a ways to go. I was like, wow, he must have really been a um, open minded captain. He was eons ahead of his time. Yeah, no, he had another incentive, Denise. Yeah, and it was a it was a big one enough for him to take that risk, and of course it ends badly. But yeah, yeah. wow. Now, how when did you publish Fog, and then when did you publish? And we only have about nine more minutes. But when did you publish sure. Off Seas? When did you publish Islands Apart? A Year on the Edge of Civilization. I want to talk briefly about that book. Sure. And you said you have yeah. another book coming out. But when did Fog come out? And then can we want to tell us when you published Islands Apart? Sure. Fog came out this May, so it's a oh, okay. fairly recent book. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 fresh off the shelves. Um and then Islands Apart, uh that was published in two thousand nine. Okay. So uh yeah, just a couple of years ago. Now Islands Apart, that's nonfiction, correct? That is nonfiction, that's correct, yeah. Okay, and can you give our listeners who are some of them may be history buffs or they just love the outdoors like you you do or traveling. Can you just tell them, give us a brief synopsis of Islands Apart, a year on the edge of civilization? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a, it's sort of a look at our fast-paced times. And what I did was we I live in Southern California in Ventura, and off our coast there are these islands called the Channel Islands. Uh, they're part of Channel Islands National Park, which is this incredibly beautiful place. And anyhow, I, I spent uh, time alone on each of those islands. And the idea behind the book, Denise, I mean, in the beginning, I thought, you know, everything was rushed. It seemed like today's fast-paced technology, you know, has its advantages, but it's had its drawbacks, too, and nobody lives forever. And when I had a quiet moment, I'd think, you know, I'm rushing to the end and missing so much. You know, people wow. often say they're getting lots of things oh, done, my but, goodness. you know, each day is a to-do list. So I thought, what would happen if I totally removed myself from everything and went to these islands, which happen to be incredibly beautiful and incredibly desolate, and spent time alone? But it's not just about, it's not like, uh, I mean, the editors called it a Walden for a new time, but that's wrong on two points. I mean, first of all, I'm not Henry David Thoreau, and secondly, the book's actually kind of funny, but um, Islands Apart, but I also did things on the mainland. The the chapters flip-flop back and forth between time alone on the islands and things on the mainland that I thought sort of, one, represented our times, but also sort of had an under, underpinning that goes back for time immemorial. I spent time on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, where these impersonators dress up as uh, characters and they panhandle money, but they actually have one, the gentleman I ran into dressed up as Johnny Depp and he was the hardest working guy I ever saw and keeping it short, every dollar that he earned posing for pictures with the tourists, he was saving to make a movie. And so the underlying theme there was fame and what people will do, the links they'll go to. So each chapter flip-flops back and forth. I spent time in a soup kitchen in Beverly Hills, and that was poverty and kindness was the underlying theme there. So it's a look at our fast-paced times, but also sort of a look at mankind in general, you know, our propensity for kindness, our our need for recognition. But mostly it's just it was a look at maybe the need. I'm not telling people what to do by any stretch, but the need to sort of slow down and really see and observe things because this is our one shot. And sometimes yeah, you're right. Like we are rushing, you know, it's like this to-do list and that to-do oh, list. Oh, my gosh. And so it was a step back and just to slow down and take a close look at this life before it passes us by. Wow. You. Oh, my God. I thank you for that, for sharing that. That's something that is a reminder we can all use. You know, our lives are awful. They're crammed. They are just <laughs> crammed. When we're kids, they're, they're, they're carefree for for many of us. Yeah. Uh, uh, certainly not all, unfortunately, but when we get older and we get families and we get these lists of responsibilities and you got to wait work, you got to pay your bills, you got to, you got to, got to, got to, got to, it's just going yeah. on and on. You don't have time. You're hitting really. the nail on the head. That's exactly it. That's yeah, exactly you it. You don't have time yeah. to really sit down and explore and enjoy life. You just, like you said, you got one to just check off the to-dos. Check, 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 check. <laughs> right, and then you go to, at the end of the day, you think, what did I really get from today? 
Yeah. Again, I'm not preaching, but it's like, you know, you might I'm not very good with to-do lists. I usually lose them. But, um, you know, it, it is. Life's so short, and I think, you know, it's that's no cliche. And sometimes at the end of the day, yeah. you think, well, what did I really get from today? Wow. And the answer is, gee, wow, not much. So, <laughs> yeah, but it's hard. I mean, people have busy lives. I'm not telling them that yeah. they can drop everything. And But, right. I mean, it was literally, I mean, you talked about being a kid. You know, there were times where I was out on the islands literally lying on my back just looking up at the sky. Which, wow. And then that was, you know, it's just things that we don't ever, you know, have a chance to do. And these islands out here are actually beautiful, and I know we're running out of time, but they're so wild and they're so primitive and they're just this gem. And so I had a chance to spend time in these incredibly gorgeous places where I could, you know, I was yeah. alone. I had time to actually. Wow. So, yeah. Can you tell us? Can you tell us where our off-the-shelf listeners can get copies of your books? And also, sure. uh, can you tell us the title of the book you're working on now when you expect to have that out on the market? Sure, yeah, all the books. I mean, uh, off-season and islands, of all, well, all the books are available uh, through, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all those, Fog is too, through all the major online booksellers. Uh, you can go to any bookstore and order them through the bookstore. Off-season and Islands Apart may actually be on the shelf. Fog has to be ordered, and uh, they just, uh, you know, it's there in four days. And so it's, uh, you know, it's in bookshelf. It's on bookshelves around here, but it's not. Uh, you probably can't find it in Philadelphia, but if you go into a bookstore and yeah, like to order a copy of Fog, they can get it to you. Um, I think mean, that's the beauty of today's day and age. Most people order books mm-hmm. online anyhow. And yeah. there's a new novel. It's called Together We Jump. And actually, it's kind of exciting. Oh, it's I love right your now titles. Sitting on a, oh, well, you're you, sweet. I tell you, the I title thing is titles. so hard because they, they have to be concise and they have to be sort of intriguing. And, and uh, yeah, it's just you take an entire novel and try to cram it into three words. But anyhow, that book, it's uh, currently sitting on an editor's desk at Penguin. So I'm not sure exactly what the time frame will be for that. Okay. I, I'll be honest with you. I, I self-published that with iUniverse, but they liked it so much that they pulled it from the mass and took it to Penguin. So wow. now it's sitting on. Yeah, Congratulations. It's kind of oh, well, my goodness. Sweet. It's a long shot, but it's uh, it's gotten really nice feedback, so we'll see wow. what happens. Yeah. Oh, and I I'm going to buy your I book, not goes, just because I you're hope, nice, but <laughs> because I'm intrigued. I hope they go all the way to the top, and I can say I interviewed him on Off the Shelf. I I, I wish the best for all of our listeners and and the writers who come on. I got to ask you one last question. You are such a phenomenal guest and speaker. If somebody wanted you to speak at an organization, whether they wanted you to speak about something about a. Uh, uh, a part of America, uh, something about history, or just your books, writing. There's so many things you could cover, so many things, because you've done so much. But if somebody wanted you to speak at an organization they're affiliated with or that they lead, how how could they contact you? Yeah, that's that's really kind. Uh, Probably the best way is uh, through my website, which is just kenmcalpine.com, and then there's a way to – like I said, this friend of mine, Hank Tovar, brought me into the modern age, and you can email me through that site. So that's just, it's K-E-N-M-C-A-L-P-I-N-E.com. And anybody who wants to contact me, I love to hear from readers. I love to hear from writers. I love to hear from people. So, you know, feel free. And, Denise, you're so nice. This was so easy. It, just, it was like sitting at the kitchen table talking to you. You have you ask great questions. Um hey, well- Genuinely well, passionate. I know that came up earlier, and it just makes it such a pleasure. I mean, I've done a fair number of radio and uh, shows. I've been so lucky, and uh, you just you're really good. So well, and I'm not just you. saying that because you had me as a guest. I'm uh, saying that because as I get older, I think you should say what you feel. So that's uh, what I yeah. feel. Well, I appreciate I appreciate you sharing that, Ken, and I appreciate you taking time out of your schedule. He's on the West Coast, as he said, for off-the-shelf listeners, so it's it's a little earlier there. He had to get up early, uh, 8 o'clock for him kickoff. Of course, 11 here in Philadelphia on the East Coast for me. But want to thank Ken again. Go out and get a copy of his books. He's got Fog. He's got the Together We Jump that we, we hope that one gets picked up and is out soon and uh, – Islands Apart, A Year on the Edge of Civilization, 
which is nonfiction and all season discovering America on Winter Shore. You've heard him share his fascinating stories with us. I keep seeing that television show with him him in it. Uh, but just just a fascinating life and his stories that he shares. Fog is is a book. Uh, if you go to the website and you do a little bit of the research for it, it's a book that is intriguing and one that will teach and entertain. I highly encourage you to go out and get a copy of all of his books and, and his novel, the one novel that's out there now, which, again, is Fog. You can check it out at his website, dot com. Com, KenMcAlpine.com. If you want a print copy, you don't see it on the shelf, just ask the clerk. Say you want to get a copy of Fog by Ken McAlpine, and they can order it for you. Or you can get it right off the um, the Internet, one of his three books. Thank you again, Ken, to our listeners. As I always tell you, uh, you are so incredibly awesome, so amazing. Sometimes we forget that. You are just fascinating. Go out and create an awesome day for yourself. Thank you for being with us here on Off the Shelf. Please tell everybody you know to tune in to Off the Shelf. Saturdays, 11 o'clock, where we just bring you one phenomenal guest like Ken McAlpine after the other. See you next week. Bye for now. And Ken, I'll shoot you an email. Thank you, Denise. You're wonderful. Thanks.